0: Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 11. The Word of God speaks to us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Both of you. I'm glad you're here. Hey, um, I've, I've never been, um, like, worried or anxious about public speaking. I have a lot of faults, but being loud um, and for a sustained period of time in front of people has never been something I've been concerned about. Um, but every, every time I get the opportunity to preach, I'm struck with um, a kind of fear but like, how do you speak about the glories and the mysteries and the excellencies of this God? So I'm never like I'm never anxious to speak, but I am regularly sobered by my inability to express in even a small way the infinite glory of who God is for us in Jesus Christ. And I don't think I've ever had that feeling more acutely than I have for the last 15 minutes while we've sang together and heard announcements. And I I find comfort in this reality right in this moment, just to let you into my world. The gospel of the resurrection of Jesus is so glorious and so beautiful and so powerful that we will spend hundreds of billions of years in eternity celebrating the beauty of it. And we won't get bored. It's not like we're going to go, okay, we're done with that. Now, next thing. It's so big, so immense, so beautiful. We have eternity to celebrate God for his goodness and not grow weary and it's so simple a child can hear the words of the gospel the resurrection of Jesus and say yes I'll build my life on that so we're going to spend the next five I think weeks in first Corinthians chapter 15 and each of us are going to take a small shallow um, embarrassing step to herald to you the glories of who God is for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And my prayer is that God will do things far beyond any of our ability and give us faith to take hold of his word and to stand on it. I, I got to hang out with this guy in college. I'll say this and I'll pray and we'll get into the text. It's like before, before I'm married, before I have kids, and I got to hang out with a guy who is older than me and I got to watch him do things like, you know, love his family and serve his kids and put his kids to bed. And every night he would say to his kids as he tucked them in, these are little kids, this is daddy's little secret. The man is broken. He needs mending. God's grace is the glue. Those were the last words he said to his kids every night and we flip the light off and leave. That's what we're talking about this morning. And it's so much more powerful than any of us could fathom. Let's ask God to help us hear it and receive it. God, it is humbling to me to think about like this, this truth that Paul lays down for us, this of first importance thing for Paul is something that's beyond the collected wisdom of every human being that will ever live, and yet it's simple enough that a child can say, yes, I need that, I need him. So will you meet us somewhere in the midst of that gap, living God, Give us faith. Would you grant us faith? Because what we need this morning is not a good sermon. What we need this morning is the word of God spoken to hearts that can receive it by faith. So, Holy Spirit, would you do all those things, I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Think about how our phones, among a lot of things, have changed the way we use the word remind, right? If your household sounds anything like mine, you hear this a dozen times a day. Hey, Siri, remind me to move the garden hose in three hours. Hey, Siri, remind me to pick up the kids at six o'clock. Hey, Siri, remind me next Tuesday that we have a doctor's appointment. Am Am I the only one that uses my phone like this? I was kind of hoping it would trigger one of your phones and I would get a response from your phone. Like, we, we use reminders constantly. That's one way we use the word remind. But we also use the word remind to give someone information that they probably didn't have, but it's just a polite way of saying, hey, as a way of reminder, which presumes that you already know this, and I'm just telling it to you again, but maybe you didn't know this, as, as, as a gentle reminder, if you want to get your paycheck next Friday, I need all your time cards submitted to me this week. Or if you want your reimbursements next week, as a reminder, I need all the receipts by Thursday three o'clock that's that's another way we use the word reminder but there's another way we can use the word remind to admonish someone to rebuke them it's it's a fatherly thing we do to say hey listen to me I know that you claim that you know this but your actions tell me you don't know what you claim to know Or, hey, let me remind you, you have said at points in your life that this thing is important to you, yet nothing of what you're doing right now embodies the stated importance you've declared in the past. It's this latter use of remind that Paul lays down for the Corinthians in chapter 15. He says to them, hey, let me remind you of the gospel now this chapter offers us some of the most beautiful sustained powerful meditations on the resurrection of jesus that has ever been written by a human pen but the occasion that gave rise to this chapter in the bible was not a pretty one it's outside our text this morning but look with me at verse 12 of first corinthians chapter 15. And you'll see that there are some, perhaps many, we don't know what the percentage was in the church at Corinth that was denying the resurrection of Jesus. It's a really significant problem. Because Paul's saying to them, hey, the essence of Christianity, the fundamentals of following Jesus hinge on the fact that he walked out of the grave. He conquered sin, Satan, and death forever when he rose from the grave. So how can any of this be true for you, Paul says, if you don't believe in resurrection? I want to remind you, Paul says, of what is central. This is a fatherly chastisement. It's it's a reminder that has teeth, if you understand it that way. I mean, at the end of chapter 14, Paul makes this really bold statement. He says, if you don't acknowledge or recognize these things I'm talking about, that are recognized throughout all the churches, then you are not recognized. It's a powerful statement if you reflect on it. And having said that, hey, if you don't recognize the truths that all the other churches live on, stand on, walk in, operate in, if you don't recognize those truths, or if you're laboring to manipulate the truth of God to serve your own ends, then you're not recognized. So Paul begins chapter 15. Let me remind you. Let me remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This thing that you have alleged to believe in, but you're not walking in. And here's what I, here's what I hope to do with you this morning. I hope to, in the same spirit of reminding, a a firm, loving spirit, remind you of what is of first importance in the Christian faith like what is central, what is basic, what is ground level, what is the E on the I chart. I hope that all of us can receive this reminder. And if you're here with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I pray that you'll hear this reminder by God's grace as an invitation. To, to hear who God is for you in Jesus and realize that the gospel of Jesus is not proclamation to you of stuff you have to do, nor is it politics or morality. The gospel of Jesus is the announcement that what God requires, he has supplied for you in Jesus. Everything you long for, everything you need, God has provided for you. So let me remind you and hope that you can receive that as an invitation. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, and by God's grace, you're laboring to grow in the gospel, you're getting stretched, and you're stumbling because all of us do, but you're laboring to live your life in the ways of Jesus, if that's you this morning, I want my reminder for you to be an affirmation. An encouragement that in the midst of struggle, in the midst of exhaustion, you would once again hear the word of God and by faith take hold of it and say, this is worth it. I'm in. I'm going to keep walking with him. I'm going to keep trusting him to be enough for me. I want to remind you, Paul says. And if you're here this morning and Christianity is a culture for you, but it hasn't changed you from the inside out if you view the gospel as something you do from the outside and try to work it in instead of seeing it as something that god has done on the outside that he works you from the inside out i pray that you would hear this kind of frightening caution paul says hey you can't play with the truth of the resurrection you can't stand on the side of it you either have to put your weight full on it or you become an enemy of it, he's going to tell us in chapter 16. So if that's you, if you're like, if you're a cultural Christian who hasn't actually experienced the resurrection life of Jesus inside of you, man, I pray this functions as an exhortation for you. So here's the way I want us to get into this passage. And I hope I say this sentence a lot of times, okay? The gospel of Jesus is truth that transforms The gospel of Jesus is truth that transforms. But in order for the truth to transform, the truth must be trusted. Let me say it to you again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is truth that transforms. But in order for the truth to transform, the truth must be trusted. So let's look at the truth of the gospel and jump with me to verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, For I delivered to you... As of first importance, Paul says, there is no mistaking. We can talk about a lot of things. We can wax eloquently about many matters, many of which are important. But the thing that is most important, Paul says, is Jesus, Christ crucified for our sins. So here is the news of the gospel, right? And the gospel just means news, When we see gospel in the Bible, I realize it's taken on technical language for us as Christians, and rightly so. But gospel just means news. It's something that's announced. It's something that's proclaimed. It's something that's been accomplished. And if you're a word lover or a grammar geek, gospel is always in the indicative, not the imperative. It means it announces something that has been accomplished instead of instructing something for you to do. THE GOSPEL IS NOT ADVICE, THE GOSPEL IS NOT COMMANDS, THE GOSPEL IS NOT SUGGESTIONS, THE GOSPEL IS NOT DEMANDS. THE GOSPEL IS THE ANNOUNCEMENT THAT SOMETHING HAS BEEN DONE FOR YOU. THE GOSPEL OF JESUS IS THE PROCLAMATION THAT GOD HAS DONE SOMETHING FOR YOU AND DOESN'T NEED YOU TO DO ANYTHING FOR HIM, BY THE WAY. the, the the facts of the gospel are as follows 1 corinthians 15 3 jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures verse 3 jesus was buried verse 4 jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures those are the facts That's the facts of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul's saying, you should build your life on this. You should take this as the solution by God for the most fundamental and deep needs every human on the planet possesses. These are the facts, Paul says. Now, the significance of the facts are embedded in there. First and foremost, Paul calls Jesus the Christ, which is not his last name nor is it some extra word you can add on to a profanity to give it more punch this the word christ is the word messiah and what paul is saying is jesus is the hope of the world The Messiah, as the Jews had longed for him, heard the prophets speak about him. They gazed around the world and said, God, something is broken with creation. When will you restore the purpose of the universe? When will you make what's crooked straight, what's unjust just, what's sick healed? When will you come and deliver us? And God answers his people and says, I will send you my Messiah. I'll send you the Christ And Paul says, Jesus is that guy. Everything humanity has ever cried out for, that's Jesus. And he dies, Paul says, not as a moral example for you, not as a scapegoat, not as the negative penalty of being a good teacher. He dies for the sins of the world. Listen to what David Pryor says in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Jesus is either a substitute or not. He cannot be Savior if he's not substitute. Here's what Pryor says. There is no true proclamation of the gospel which does not explain in New Testament terms the link between human sin and the death of Christ. Indeed, there is no gospel at all. There is no gospel at all unless the death of Christ can be seen to deal with sin once and for all. Paul said he is the Messiah, and he died as a substitute. That's critical. And then he says he was buried. He was put into a grave which is important because there are so many conspiracy theories that still surface around our world today. They're like, well, Jesus didn't really die. His disciples thought he died, or they took him off the cross because he had blacked out and was unconscious, but he didn't really die. And Paul's saying, hey, no, 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 you don't put like half-dead people in a grave. You don't take someone to Mad Max who's all the way dead. You only take someone to Mad Max who's mostly dead, right, if you're Princess Byron fans. Paul's saying, no, he was all the way dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was so dead that they embalmed him and buried him. He was put into a grave. Listen to what Gordon Fee says about the significance of this. That he was buried functions to verify the reality of the death. In the present context, it emphasized the fact that a dead corpse was laid in the grave. So that the resurrection that follows will be recognized as an objective reality, not merely a spiritual phenomenon. Real body, really died, put in a real grave, and walked out again new and newly alive. I remember I moved 2005 to Vancouver, British Columbia to do postgraduate work in theology. And I was working with pastors and church leaders from all over the world. It was a blast. People from all the continents and like really fun people to be around. But there was one guy in one of my seminars on Jesus who one day stands up and he was a significant denominational leader in Australia. And he stands up and says, I do not know what all you guys have been out of shape about. If someone found the bones of Jesus in a tomb in Palestine, it doesn't affect my faith one iota. And I looked at him and I said, hey, Martin, Paul says you're a fool. Because he's later going to say, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, all of us are of all people to be pitied. And Christianity is absurd, a real man who walked a real earth, died a real, gruesome, brutal death, was put in a real grave, and folded up his grave clothes and walked out of the grave. I mean, like, just stand for that for a second. God entered into our world to address all that was broken and in rebellion in our world, took upon himself the sins of the world, died as a sacrifice in our place. And the story didn't end there because he was vindicated as the Savior of the world when he walked out of the grave and said, oh yeah, I put death down as well. This is the gospel. This is what Paul says, the thing that I preach to you, the thing that saves you, and the thing in which you're standing And Paul says, I'm not making this up. Lots of people saw him walking around alive. This isn't a spiritual resurrection. This isn't something you go, oh, well, it's it's about the concept of new life, not about actually conquering death. No, Paul says lots of people witnessed these facts. Look at verses 5 to 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and Jesus appeared, verse 5, to Peter, then to the rest of the 12 disciples, Then, verse 6, to more than 500 at once. And Paul's point was, most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. I'm not making this up, Paul says. And this is what Paul's reminding them. Hey, you're supposed to build your life on this truth, Paul says. And you can talk to people that witness this truth, and you're trying to say, no, the dead aren't raised. Paul says, hey, you can talk to people that saw him alive, then he appeared to James verse 7 then to all the apostles verse 7 then Paul says last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me verse 9 verse 8 and then we see we see in verses 9 to 10 that when Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus oh man I pray this is true for you when Paul encountered the resurrection Jesus the resurrected Jesus Changed everything about him. So comprehensively transformed was the Apostle Paul by his encounter with the resurrected Jesus that God changed his name. God changed his name. Now, maybe you don't know anything about Paul, but his name wasn't always Paul. His name used to be Saul. And Saul knew about the resurrection of Jesus. The problem was he didn't think it was glorious. He thought it was blasphemous. How could the Messiah, how could the Savior of the world die? And this man who allegedly knew the Scriptures better than anyone else, lots of scholars say, had Paul not met Jesus and become a Christian, he would have been the most powerful and knowledgeable rabbinical scholar in the world. Paul would have been the most knowledgeable Jewish rabbi in the world until Jesus messed up his plans. Paul knew about the resurrection of Jesus, and so offensive to him was the thought of the Messiah dying that Paul decides the best thing he can do is snuff out this story about the resurrection by killing anyone who claimed to build their life upon it. Go to Acts chapter 7 this afternoon in your free time and read about the first martyr. Stephen preaches the good news of Jesus and is murdered. As these guys are beating Stephen to death with rocks, Paul says, Hey, if you'll bring me your jackets, you won't get blood on them while you're killing him." That guy, Saul. And then in chapter 8, we see persecution break out all over the church of God in Acts chapter 8. In the beginning of Acts chapter 9, Saul goes to the high priest and gets special permission to go and take by force anyone in Damascus that claims to celebrate or walk in the way of the resurrected Messiah. And on the way to Damascus, he met the resurrected Messiah. I mean, think about the irony for Saul. So offended by this story of God who would die for the sins of the world on the road to Damascus meets the resurrected God who died for the sins of the world. I mean, it is astonishing, and it reoriented everything for Paul. It reoriented what he loved. It reoriented his loyalties. It reoriented his values. It reshaped and revolutionized how he thought he was okay because Paul thought what he was doing made him okay. And when he met the resurrected Jesus, he realized that only Jesus makes you okay. And Jesus changes his identity changes his name we talk all the time about Paul's road to Damascus there's a Korean scholar who wrote a book a long time ago now that I love the title of as much as I love the book the title of the book is the road from Damascus And Siun Kim in this book argues that so transformative was the truth of the resurrection of Jesus that the road to Damascus didn't even matter for Paul. It was the road from Damascus in which he took that Damascus encounter into every other thing he did for the rest of his life. It, It redefined beauty and purpose and identity and righteousness for Paul. And here's how Tim Keller summarizes the transformation that Paul experienced when he met the risen Jesus. He says this, what Paul is saying is, my very being has been changed. I've been changed volitionally and socially and emotionally and cognitively. Every way has been changed. Paul's name was the smallest thing about him that changed. God revolutionized, reoriented, rewired, reanimated him from the inside out. And we hear that when Paul says, hey, this is who I was. Did did you get that when we heard Brittany read the text? This is who I was. Look at verse nine. I'm the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, Paul says, I, I, I know who I was. I know how I lived, and I know that I thought that was good and righteous, and then I met the resurrected Messiah. He changed everything for me. But what I love about the transformation is it's so comprehensive. Paul can name how terrible he was, but he doesn't dwell on that or get caught up in that in shame and self-condemnation. He said, this is who I was, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, hey, God changed me so significantly that I'm not going to allow my past to overshadow or compromise my present apostolic ministry. Paul says, God changed everything in me through the resurrected Jesus because the truth transforms and how does the truth transform us? What well, does it personally? Jesus addresses Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul says, hey, like, <laughs> he hears this voice from heaven, right? Acts chapter 9. And the voice says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's blinded by supernatural light and says, who are you? The answer back to him is, I'm Jesus. You think you're persecuting these idiots. You're actually persecuting the body of the resurrected Son of God. It changed everything for him. It was personal, and it was powerful. It wasn't about Paul's commitment to self-reform. This resurrected Jesus encountered Paul personally and powerfully such that everything in him was changed. My question for you is, how do you walk in that? Like, if, if you believe the facts of the resurrection, and by faith you, like, will build your life on or like Paul says in the beginning of our chapter, you'll stand in the truth of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection, How do you navigate that when you deal with disappointment and anxiety and competition and unforgiveness and the sins and failures of other people? Like, how do you live in light of the resurrection or how do you grow actively? Because Paul says, I worked harder than everybody. It's not that God's grace was just this, you know, uh, thing that, Happened and then I never did anything. Paul said, in light of God's grace, in response to God's grace, I worked harder than everybody. How do you do that? Like, what does this look like practically in your life? As I prayed for us this week, I wonder, because I'm new to Frontline, right? I've been here just a year. Are you guys familiar with Tim Chester's 4Gs? Have you guys walked through the 4Gs here before? Long time ago. None of these people remember, just you. Hey, are you guys familiar with Tim Chester's 4Gs? Just Braden does Say no if you're not. Okay, I'm gonna give them to you. Is that cool? It's like a Fourth of July present. I think this is practical. These are four truths. This is what Tim Chester saying. Hey, here's the way you take the reality of the resurrection and press it down into your life. He gives you four truths. Number one, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Think about all the places in your life where things feel out of your control and you're inclined to respond with anxiety or manipulation or rage. You know how you experience the transforming power of the resurrection? You can say, God, you are in control. I trust you. I don't need to rage. I don't need to worry. I don't need to manipulate. I don't need to manage. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Number two, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Hey, brothers and sisters, if you can come to the realization that the most significant being in the universe is God, it utterly liberates you from trying to perform and pretend to other people either to win their approval or to be rewarded for giving them your approval. It frees you from the power of people over you and actually lets us love and serve and connect with people and be generous with our presence because we're not trying to earn their favor. Number three... God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Any place I'm tempted to take things that aren't mine, be it physical things like indulgence of emotions or giving into thoughts and lusts or trying to seek retaliation or whatever, like the answer is like, hey, God supplies everything I need and he's good, so I don't have to try to supply my good outside of him. And then fourth and finally, God's gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that what the God of the universe requires from you, he has supplied for you. What the God of the universe requires from you, he has supplied for you. It liberates you from trying to prove yourself and establish the fact that you're okay. The the fact that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again is the answer to every question you're asking in the deepest parts of your soul. And if you think like, how could I extrapolate those four G's even further? I'll give you a Google search. Search David Powlison, x-ray questions. And this is a guy that gives you something like 35 questions to ask, like, hey, am I I actually believing what I say I'm believing, or am I believing in vain, like Paul says? And that's the way I want to close our time this morning, because the truth of the resurrection transforms, the gospel transforms, but truth that transforms has to be trusted Or another way to say it, truth that's not trusted doesn't transform. Look back to verse 2 of chapter 15. I would remind you, I'll read verse 1 and 2 for context. I'll remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word of truth, or to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Truth has to be trusted. And Paul says, hey, this is, this is the reality of living life in the resurrection power of Jesus unless, unless you've believed in vain or if you're not holding fast to the truth that I preach you. And the fact of the matter is you say these kinds of things to people when you believe they're not holding fast to it, right? This is the kind of thing you say as a loving reprimand to someone to say, hey, wake up and rest your weight on this truth that that's what it means to stand on something right and that's the way I define faith maybe because I'm talking to my kids all the time but I also think it's the easiest way to understand what does it mean to put my faith in Jesus it means I take the truth of who he is and I stand on that with my life and I trust that who he is in his resurrection power is sufficient to support me it means I don't have to lean out to try to balance myself or steady myself someplace else You know what it means to believe in vain? It means you say that you're standing on this truth, but you're actually constantly looking for something else to prop you up and give you stability. I'm thinking, well, yeah, I mean, the resurrection of Jesus is all I need, but if these people at work don't really acknowledge me for all that I'm doing, I I don't know if I could go on. Or if my kids don't turn out to be popular or smart or successful in athletics, I mean, I just just don't know how I could look my family in the face. Or if I can't prove my dad wrong or prove my mom wrong or prove my father-in-law wrong or if I can't win that girl or win that guy. Like any place you add an if statement to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, you're not standing on it. You're looking for something else to bear your weight. The the word of the Lord to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is hold fast to the gospel of Jesus. Hold fast to it. Stand in it. Like the, the truth of Christ crucified for your sins, dead and buried and rose again, vindicated as the Messiah of the world, that is enough to hold you. Here's, here's my effort to summarize the gospel or the hope of the gospel to close our time. What God requires, God provides, 2 Corinthians 5.21. What God provides, he perfects, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, God isn't gonna start something in you and leave it hanging. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Whom God perfects, he has purposes for, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, you're saved by grace, and you're saved to walk in good works, which God prepared beforehand for you in Christ Jesus. And then whom God perfects, he protects, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, you're being kept. Your faith is being guarded until the day of Christ Jesus. So the good news of the gospel of Jesus is not about how tightly can you hold on to this truth, it's the fact that the truth holds on to you. If, if you'll hear it and build your life on it, like this is the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus. And what I don't want us to be is the kind of church or the kind of people that talk about these things on the periphery, but they actually don't characterize the fabric of our lives. I had a conversation with my kids this week about them asking, Dad, why are all these things in movie trailers that are never actually in the film? I could have given them an elaborate response about editing and Hollywood and deadlines and you know screening audiences and test audiences. I didn't, I didn't. But it actually, I just I mean, hey, sometimes it's weird, right? That a movie purports to be about things in the trailer that you don't actually see it in the film. And that reminded me of a quote by Michael Spencer, who years ago, I mean, he died in 2010, I think, who years ago said, I don't want to be the kind of man who has Jesus on the cover of the book of my life, but he doesn't appear in the book itself. That, that's what it means to believe in vain. And Paul says, don't do that. Let me remind you what's of first importance. The gospel is truth that transforms. And for the truth to transform it has to be trusted. And I don't know how many of you are fans of David Foster Wallace, but I love an in Infinite Jest his gesture to the words of Jesus when he says, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. Pray with me. Living Jesus. Living Jesus. I'm not spitting words to a dead God or a human idea. I'm speaking to the living God in whose presence we all stand living Jesus, would you grant us faith to hear your word and respond, to build our lives on the truth of you crucified for our sins and raised for our eternal justification. We will struggle, we will fail, doubt will be present, but it does not prevail. Help us to trust you And and Jesus, thank you that you promise you will not let us go until you've had your way with us. And we can stand on that truth as we look to you in heaven forever. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.